Well, it's a great joy to be here again. Um, unlike most uh, double services, I'm not going to be speaking the same message in the second half as I am in the first. You, you need to understand this. I am. I've been given this highly challenging. To I've been given the well, yeah, the labour of Hercules, trying to reduce Revelation into two sections, two sessions. Um, Jesus might be able to accomplish it, but I, you know, it's it's challenging. So I am going to be carrying on in the second session. I may, I may give, uh, have some time to answer the odd question at the end of it all, but um, we'll see how we go. <laughs> all right. Um, and as I, as I have said on numerous occasions here and in other good his people environments a good teacher does not answer questions a good teacher will question answers and one of our problems as Christians um, partly sometimes because of a lack of, of, of confidence in our own capacity to understand sometimes because some people have very strong views about things that we listen to and hear. We have a tendency to interpret the Bible through our perceptions. And so we have great streams of doctrinal teaching, which I, you know, on occasion people hold very tenaciously to because that's all they've been brought up to know. And they interpret the Bible through what they've been taught. May I just encourage you not to do that to the best of your ability. Uh, it is not easy. We all do it to a certain measure, but certainly when it comes to this subject particularly, for whatever reason, people have tended to invite, interpret their own Bibles through that which they've been taught. And that is because it's a complex subject. It's not immediately straightforward. And I will do my best to help give you tools to study Revelation rather than doing the study for you because it's 22 chapters long and you haven't probably read it before you came here this morning. And I met one chap who went through a two-hour uh, two cycle ride. That was probably really great. That prepares you very well for Revelation. But, but uh, it is ideal to read the book and to be familiar with it, what it has to say. And I, I simply won't be able to do justice to giving you a chapter-by-chapter chapter exposition. Um, that's not to say I couldn't, but not in two hours or an hour and a half, all right? But um, so what I'm intending to do is to help you approach prophetic teachings in the scripture generally, give you a few principles, they used to be called laws, but they're really guidelines on interpreting the ap apocalyptic writings of the, of the Bible, and Revelation is the principal one that is still kind of outstanding in most people's minds, and, and then I am going to have a look at the different approaches to it in church history, of which there have been three. And one of those is split into kind of two. But it's important for you to realize that the church hasn't always been in agreement about how to interpret Revelation themselves. And, and, and now more, though, more so than ever. And I think that is partly because we live in a period in, in history which is, is unstable. You know, on Tuesday, there's an important election. I, I tell the Americans, I think everybody in the world should have a vote in their, their general election, their presidential election, because the truth is what they do has an influence and a bearing upon all the rest of us. And, but, you know, they, they, don't, they don't like that very much. But, um, uh, yeah, but we, we have an important election. But the, the two candidates, well, quite frankly, neither of them are really going to be great. Um, and one is going to be a disaster. So we, we need to, to recognize that uh, we live in unstable times. You know, I've just moved in the process of moving to England and the whole of Europe is 
kind of been thrown into turmoil because Britain's decided to leave. And, and for good, and I think for quite good reasons, although I would have been more cautious about, about the decision and the way it's been uh, made. But, um, you know, you don't really want to live in a country where some of the institutions that decide its affairs are not accountable to the electorate. So the European Commission and the European Court of Justice are appointed. They are not elected by the people of Britain or anywhere else in Europe. So, so they are one step away. So they're a, they have a, a liberty to do things which is not accountable to the electorate. And that particularly in Britain has become a, a significant issue along with, uh, along with migrant migration and some of the challenges that that has created. But be that as it may, we live in a time of great global uncertainty and change. And that, that makes us start to think. And it makes us concerned about future. And it makes us engage with things in a way in that we kind of left to one side before because it wasn't so pressing. And what is interesting to me in studying uh, uh, the history of the different views of, on Revelation is that, um, <coughs> that the, the events of the time have often had a profound bearing on what people have believed. And so, for example, they were very persuaded in the f for the first thousand odd years, uh, certainly the first few hundred, that Rome was the beast of Revelation because of the persecution that from time to time spread across the empire and locked up the leaders and martyred many hundreds of individuals. And they were persuaded, absolutely con convinced that, that that was the case, that Babylon and, and the beast were all referring to an empire spirit in the Roman Empire. And yet that, when that, when that passed and that season was over, then the church began to see other in tyrannical and despotic leaders and rulers, which included the Pope and the Catholic Church, and it's included a number of other things. It included, at one particular point, Napoleon, and the, the empire spirit that the French, in the beginning of the 19th century, expressed and exhibited across Europe. So, so the church and Christian leaders and godly men who, whose testimony and whose lives you, you are inspired and challenged by, they have all, they've all engaged with this subject somewhat in different ways. And so you need to be aware of that. There isn't necessarily a single right answer. <laughs> so that also makes life interesting, doesn't it? Because you know God doesn't give the word so that he doesn't need to be there. He gives you the Bible so that he, by his Holy Spirit, can help direct your steps through the lives of other people who've gone before and through whom he has revealed his nature and his purpose and his destiny. He does not want you to have all the answers, all the right answers, to shoot down others in flames. He wants you to be able to engage with him and grow on a journey. Now, the first, there are, I've, so I'm going to start off, I don't know how we're going to go for time. How long have I got? Until about half past. That's, that's pressing it. All right. I will, what I'm going to do in the first session is, is looking, I'm going to be looking at um, really just some ways of, of reading it. And this is going to challenge some of your thinking from the very outset, which is only a good thing. So you can turn to your neighbor and say, I'm willing to be challenged and willing to have my mind changed. Because, you, you know, if you're here without that attitude, then we're in trouble from the start. Um, there are a number of basic rules or principles of interpretation of prophecy and, and the apocalyptic writings of the Bible. Just so you know, there were a number of books written like, or letters written like Revelation at that time in history. There were many, and the book of Revelation is the only one that we have put into the canon of Scripture because it was authored by John the Apostle. So, by and large, there is, this isn't completely universal, but by and large, all the books of the New Testament were written by people who walked with Jesus 
or who had a very direct revelation of him, as in Paul, shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection. Right? So uh, we have tended to exclude other writings that came along later at a later date, which may have had some authenticity, like the book of the Gospel of Thomas and one or two others, but they weren't, they weren't proven to be written by him because, of course, like then like now, anybody who was wanting to get out a publication, they would just claim it was written by somebody who was famous. <laughs> and I just claim it was written by one of Jesus' disciples, and then you've got a greater kind of greater interest in circulation. So, so they, they attached names which weren't necessarily appropriate and made claims which weren't true. So the canon is as it is because it was written largely with the exception of Jude and um, James. James was written by Jesus' brother. All the rest were either disciples of the Lamb, apostles of the Lamb, or it was Paul. <laughs> the book of Hebrews, we're not quite sure who wrote it, but it was one of the early apostles, and that we are very sure about. Okay? So it, we're not sure it was one of the apostles or the Lamb or... Thank you very much. Yeah, a, bit of, a bit more height on this would be good. That's grand. Thanks. So let's have a look at three, three pertinent. There are a number of different rules of interpretation or principles of, of biblical teaching and, and the scriptures, but these are particularly pertinent for prophetic writings. First of all, you, we need to learn to work from the plain from the plain to the obscure. Now, th this one has come under some question recently because what might be plain to me may not be plain to you. But I like to start by examining and exploring the teachings of Jesus when it comes to end times because he taught a lot about it. So we start with what Jesus had to say and that is what has caused a great deal of difficulty because Jesus made certain statements which we haven't been able to marry with our doctrine. He said several times, not just once, several times, this generation will not pass away, or some of you here will not taste death until you see the kingdom of heaven coming. Now, that really throws all kinds of questions open because what does that mean? And and because we haven't answered that, correct, cor that correctly, we, we get confused with the rest. And we kind of leave that on one side and hope it'll kind of be made plain later. But it's, it leaves us with all kinds of question marks. So Jesus is saying, some of you won't taste death until you see the kingdom of heaven coming. And he says, this generation will not pass away. Now those are, that's in Mark 9 and Mark 13. And there are other passages which say a similar thing. So you know, this leaves us asking some profound questions. What does seeing the kingdom of heaven come mean? And we are given some hints in the Olivet Discourse. Now, the Olivet Discourse was the series of teachings that Jesus gave in answer to questions that his disciples raised shortly before he died in Matthew 24 and in Mark 14, I think, and and then in Luke in a couple of different passages um, the discourse is divided into two and the, the disciples are commenting on the temple and the glorious buildings and Jesus says I tell you that not one stone will be left upon another <laughs> right? so he brings a judgment and they say when will these things be and what will be the sign of of your coming so they ask a, a two-part question and you know with that answering that question he then gives the whole teaching of Matthew 24 and those other passages that I've referred to um, but we have to we have to start there and in the Olivet Discourse Jesus makes he makes these statements about coming in the clouds Sun being darkened moon turned into blood Blood moons, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got a few of the, got a few of those things, and 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 then everybody jumps around when we see some blood moons, and they all kind of come out with new doctrines. And Jesus is coming again tomorrow, right? Because we've had five of them in the first few months of this year, right? 
So everybody go, go, they all go mad and they all jump around. Now, now when, when, when Jesus uses these words, you need to understand, and, I, and I can, this is another point in my notes, but Hebrew, the language of the Hebrews, the Hebrew ancient language, um, was particularly poetic and pictorial. It, it was an ancient language. It didn't have many, many words by comparison with English. It had very few, about eight or 9,000 words. And so it was a small language, but it was very poetic and very graphic and pictorial. So they used symbolism to describe things. So Jesus uses those, those, those kind of that language to describe the events around his coming. So we, we're all sitting here with Western, well, black minds as well as white, but we, we tend to be more influenced by Greek thinking than Hebrew. And we tend in, in, our, in our modern world to have engaged with you know, a, a more linear and more factual construct in our language rather than pictorial and imagery and poetry. So we, we've lost much of that understanding. So when we think about sun darkened, moon turned into blood, we're wanting to see something physical and literal. But God wasn't, didn't use it in that way. In fact, those phrases are used for judgment upon two other nations in the Old Testament. The first one was Babylon. And in Isaiah 13, 9 and 10, I'm not going to read the scriptures for sake of time, but... But God talks about exactly the same thing, coming in judgment upon a nation, the nation of Babylon, and he uses the same phrases. He uses the same type of language. The sun darkened, the stars will fall from heaven, and the moon will be turned into blood. And Ezekiel uses exactly the same type of phraseology, coming in the clouds, sun darkened, moon turned into blood, um, in Exodus, in, in Ezekiel, to describe judgment upon the nation of Egypt. So God has already spoken these types of language, this type of language, over, over other nations describing him coming in judgment upon them. Now, let me give you the context of Jesus coming. Because this, this will help you understand. It may raise more questions than it gives answers, but it will at least get you thinking in the right direction. What was the last few verses of Malachi chapter 4? God says, the prophet says, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers, lest I smite the land with a curse. And when he came, he was preceded by John the Baptist. And John was asked who he was by a delegation from Jerusalem, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they asked him, are you the Christ? He said, I'm not. Are you Elijah? I'm not. Then he, are you the prophet? He said, I'm not. Now, this is another message which I'm not going to get into now. But God doesn't always show you everything that you are. He only shows you enough for you to do what he's called you to do. And other, on occasion, others will see in you something you don't see in yourself. So the nation of Israel, after Malachi, were looking for a deliverer, and they had one initially in the Maccabean uprising about 200 years before. So that was within living memory. They threw off some of the oppression of the Greek Empire before Rome came. Now shortly after that, the Romans invaded, they took, they conquered Israel, and they had been the dominant ruling nation in the entire greater Mediterranean region for quite a number of years at that point in time. And Israel were looking for another Messiah. They were looking for another David. And it was on everyone's heart and tongue. They were asking the question. So they wanted to know if this man John was going to bring this change, this deliverance to the nation of Israel. Now later on, the disciples make a comment. Several times Jesus makes statement that John the Baptist was in fact Elijah 
who was to come. He says it to the disciples coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration in the book of Luke. He says it to the, the multitudes in Matthew 11. He says, who was the people, who were they going out to hear? And, you know, and then he goes on to say, I tell you that there is not a man greater, a man born of woman who is greater than he. And, and then he says, if you can bear it, he is the Elijah who was to come. If you can bear it. Because there were implications. Because the implication was that if, jo if John was Elijah, then who's Jesus? He's the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he made it quite clear that he came unto his own, but those who were his own received him not. But as many as received him, he became, gave the right to become children of God. And he made it extremely plain throughout his ministry that if you do not receive me, a judgment is coming. He made, he made many references to this. So my personal opinion is the great and terrible day of the Lord that Jesus was referring to was the judgment upon Israel by the Romans in AD 68 to 70 when Jerusalem was sacked, every stone was removed except for the Wailing Wall, the city was burnt to the ground and salted and the nation of Israel was no more. That was the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now that does not mean that there isn't another fulfillment because one of the things about Hebrew understanding of scriptures is that prophecies have are cyclical. They, have mu they may have a number of different fulfillments because Jesus is trying to create a picture, an understanding of, of, of how he operates and how he works. So there are, there are, for example, there was a prophecy in Daniel about an abomination of desolation coming into the holy place. That, has been, that was fulfilled three different times prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So it had three different fulfillments. The first one was a couple of hundred years before when Antiochus Epiphides, who was a Seleucid, he was one of the generals that took over after Alexander the Great died. He came to Jerusalem and offered pigs as a sacrifice on the altar. Right? That was one abomination. And then when the Romans conquered the temple and the, the, na the city, and it was reported very, very graphically in Josephus' writings. And I, I can't go into all the details of that for sake of time, but it, it was a horrendous judgment upon a land because people had come from all over and anticipating God's deliverance, and it didn't happen because they were listening to false prophets, just as Jesus warned them not to. And Josephus makes it quite clear that there were no true believers who were entrapped in the city because they'd all heeded the teachings that Jesus had given and the, and the warnings of judgment to come and that there would be, it would be the end of an age. Because if you were a Jew, it was the end of an age. Right? It, it was like a foreign power comes here and removes everyone from Johannesburg and destroys and scatters a people. Jerusalem was a big city. It was about 100,000, but by the time it was sacked, there were many thousands more than that. We're not quite sure how many people were crammed into that small region. But, but people had come from all over the Mediterranean out of the, Jew, the Jewish dispersion to come back because they were anticipating a deliverance. But the city was sacked, and then later on, Masada was was overrun and the Jewish people were scattered and taken whole nation into slavery. Many of them were used to build a slope up the side of Masada, which is a palace in the in the desert down by the by, down by the Dead Sea that Herod had built, and they were used to build a ramp up the side of this mountain. It's a thousand meters. It's as high as Cape Town, a like table mountain, thereabouts, close on. And uh, they built up a ramp up the side of this mountain with Jewish labor because there were Jews on top and they knew they wouldn't kill them and shoot them so that the Romans could get to the fortress and kill the people. 
and they held out for three years. So, you know, this was, this was the event which, in my opinion, Jesus was referring to, right? And then the events that follow on from that in the book of Revelation are, are the, the, the events that came during the reign of Nero because most biblical scholars these days, nearly all, um, would agree that Revelation was written about A.D. 65. Very, very shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, there was an ancient church father who implied that it was written a bit later, a chap called Iranius. But by and large, we are pretty convinced that, that Revelation was written a few years before the destruction of Jerusalem. In the, just as a persecution was about to be launched through Nero upon the church, which was the first persecution against the Christians by the Roman Empire. And it was quite intense. It was, it was very intense. In, in pockets, it was very, very, very deeply intense. And many, many people lost their lives or were taken, into, taken to prison and fed to the lions in the circuses of Rome, where up to 20,000 people a month were killed to please and entertain the Roman citizenry. And bear in mind they built stadium all over all over the Mediterranean and the Roman world. Right? So the first thing then is work from the plain to the obscure. And when it comes to the teachings of Jesus, even though it hasn't always been very clear because Hebrew is a pictorial and graphic language and we haven't always had our minds be able to get around it, we start with what Jesus taught and then we try and interpret the rest of the prophetic writings of the, of, of the New Testament in light of what he taught us. Secondly, um, another point on this is that when, especially when you read a letter, and there were a number of letters written in the New Testament, weren't they? Paul and Peter and John all wrote letters. When you read a letter, the way you read it is not by trying to just take out of it what might be relevant now. If you're going to study it, it was written to a people or a, an individual. So when you read a letter and it's somebody else's letter, <laughs> do, them, do them the favor of at least interpreting it through their eyes to a certain measure. All right. So when you read the book of Revelation, it cannot be only addressing a generation at the end of all church history. It was written to a people who lived in about AD 65 in the region of Western Turkey, which we used to call Asia Minor, right? And in the Bible call, is called Asia. And that's where the seven churches of Asia were based. And we know that that was a symbolic number. It wasn't literal. Like all the numbers in Revelation, they were symbolic because it's poetic, it's graphic, it's pictorial. So there's a lot of symbolism attached to the, to the, the, the dramatic pictures that you see, the dramatic scenes, and there's symbolism attached to the numbers that are used. Right? So, so we see that, we see that you, you must look at it and interpret it in the context of it being written to a particular people. So it had to mean something to them. Amen? You know, it wasn't just the first few, three chapters that were relevant to them and then all the rest is for the last seven years of church history, 2,000 years later or whenever that will be. That, that is, you cannot do that to the Bible, right? You, that, is, that is, again, that would be interpreting the scripture for your pet doctrine. And, and if you do that, you're going to end up deceived, like, sadly, like the many, many people who believed that Jerusalem was going to be saved and God was going to raise up another David and drive away the Roman armies. And because so many prophetic people and groups were saying it, so many false prophets as are written, Josephus estimates there were a million people living in Jerusalem when it was destroyed. We are not completely sure it was that many, because Josephus, who wrote a couple of hundred years in, you know, in the 200s, you know, slightly exaggerated one or two other things, but he is a he is a fairly reliable source, and he was Jewish, although he had become a, a Roman, you know, historian, and it wasn't just him. There were others. 
There was Tacticus, who was a Roman historian, and, and then later Eusebius, all who referred to this great event. And we need to understand it was huge. It, it, you know, Jerusalem was a major east-west trading center. It led to uh, uh, changes in the whole way that the Roman Empire was structured. So, then, so we need to understand then that when we're reading prophecy, we need to work from the plain to the obscure. Start with the teachings of Jesus wherever you can. And also understand that um, you know, it was written to a particular people with a particular purpose in mind. Because they were about to go into a period of great darkness when there was an entire empire its rage, its armies, its military strength, its capacity is going to be arrayed against them. And they needed to be prepared for this. And they needed to understand something of what this was going to look like. Life had not been straightforward for the church up until then, but the main persecutors had been the Jews and not the Romans. But now the might of empire was going to come against them uh, for a short season. Uh, it was then lifted after Nero was lost, died, uh, but came back 20 years later under Domitian. But these seasons were quite intense, often quite local, but they didn't last forever. There was a, a general discrimination against the Christians throughout the Roman era, but it, it wasn't, there were only seasons of intense persecution. It wasn't consistent and universal. All right. Now, the next thing is we need to understand, I've mentioned this, that the Hebrews thought cyclically. So when they gave a prophetic word unlike me in the west you know we tend to look for we get the prophecy and then you look for the fulfillment and then you tick that one off and then you go somewhere else but you need to recognize that when God says something he may bring it back to you in a number of different ways at different times and different fulfillments so just because some of the things in Revelation and previously may have been fulfilled doesn't mean to say that there aren't going to be other things that we can learn from it because there are one meaning but many interpretations and that meaning has different applications in different periods, in different places, and in different times in history. All right? So we are not looking for a right wrong here. We're looking for clues. We're looking for keys to help us understand ourselves when we go into seasons of great change and uncertainty, what this might look like, and how we are to engage with that ourselves because we are entering one. You know, we are entering one. And the empires and systems of this world are going to get some thorough shaking in my, my, my reading of events to come is, is correct. So, um, nextly, I've got down here, please, I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. Be willing to completely re-examine your beliefs on this subject. It's the word that searches us, we don't search it. And we need to learn to recognize that We've held ideas because they've been popular, and that doesn't necessarily make with them right. When I recommend books, I tell everybody to avoid anything that's written about end-time prophecy that's got a red, gold, and black cover, or dark blue and strong green. You know, you know, you want to read something that's clearly strike quite plain and mundane because. You know, you're not reading it to be, you know, emotionally kind of turned upside down. You're reading it to understand, all right? And, and that is very important. So dramatic titles and exotic headings and brilliant gaudy colors is not really what you're looking for when it comes to forming your doctrine. Uh, another point here is that all doctrine in the scripture is supposed to generate hope and expectation. It's, hope, it's supposed to bring life and strength. It's supposed to motivate to godly living. Amen. It's not there to induce fear and to get you anxious about what might be. So anything that closes down a future and makes it more and more dark and difficult actually does not stand the test of the rest of Scripture. Because God, even when things are dark, He always speaks into the midst of that and brings hope and light and, positive and a positive expectation of good to come. So, you know, you can go and look, well, Saul and Jonathan fighting the Philistines. They are fighting an army the size of sand on the seashore, multitudes, chariots, everything, tall blokes, 
you know, nine foot tall and, and, and you know, and so on. And they have 600 men, that's it. And furthermore, they don't have any weapons because the Philistines have taken all the blacksmiths. So only Saul and Jonathan have any kind of proper military equipment. And Jonathan says to his armor bearer, let's go over there and see what God's going to do. And the armor bearer says, the Lord is able to save by many or by few. Now that, those are dark times, right? You would say. They're not, they're not really straightforward. But God brings hope. He gives those two men victory over an entire army, drives the Philistines away because God fights on their behalf, because God is always the one who brings victory out of into the darkest of places. And you just read the Psalms. You know, they may start sober, but they end up praising God because they see something of his goodness and his glory. All right? Now, that is really important. Another point here is that it's important to listen to people who have a measure of wisdom either historically have gone before or now when it comes to these issues and to approach them with an open mind I've already mentioned the next point we've got about five minutes then I'm going to kind of close roughly close down ten okay um, so when you read the book of Revelation it says at the beginning and at the end one very very important statement it says, do not seal the words of this book because the events will shortly take place. In chapter 22, it mentions that or something similar five times. Now, there is one part of the book of Revelation that was sealed. The thunders. There were seven trumpets, well, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath and seven thunders right and John is about to write down what the seven thunders mean as he did all the other ones but an angel says don't write them down for the time is not yet but all the rest he was instructed to write down and not to seal now you read the book of Daniel which is in another apocalyptic book. And in chapter 8, Daniel is told to seal all the prophecies of that book because they were not for now. They were for 400 years later. Right? Or thereabouts. But Jesus, his coming, and the events surrounding it, and, and the destruction of Jerusalem, and the scattering of the nation and glories to come now why if the events were for 2,000 years later largely did the Spirit of God instruct John not to seal the book or to seal one small section and to keep the rest open the reason is because these things must shortly take place in fact the writer, God speaks and says, they are coming quickly. So they had to have a primary meaning for the people of the time. And we can learn from that. And there may be other fulfillments later. But if you have been told and have held on to an idea that the first three chapters were for then and all the rest is for the last seven years of history and that's going to kind of be split in half and then we're going to have a persecution and things are going to get incredibly dark and the church is going to be taken out of here and, and we're all, you know, and then, you know, Israel is going to get the job done of preaching the gospel to all the rest of the world, which the church has failed to do for 2,000 years because suddenly they're going to get anointed and realize and see that Jesus has come and that they've missed out and they need to do something about it. And that is, that is a view that is one of the four that we've got but it only came into the church in the 1830s and I will tell you the context in the second session for the next exciting episode <laughs> but so we have then over history we have three main views 
the last one is divided into two. two all right? The first one is called the preterist view, which means that the book of Revelation or understands that the book of Revelation was written primarily, primarily for the people of the time and secondly for all the rest of us right? and that it had a complete meaning for them it wasn't just part of it was relevant for them and all the rest wasn't it was completely relevant for the people of that time for the church throughout the Mediterranean region in that period of history and, and that was its primary purpose was to bring hope and courage and strength to a church that had grown rapidly had seen huge strides been brought amazing change already to an empire but was about to enter a season of intense persecution where many would be martyred and the, the, the way they martyred people in the Roman Empire was not great um, you know they would feed them to the lions and tie animal skins on them and get them running around a gladiatorial contest and release savage beasts upon them or get them fighting with nothing against trained gladiators or, or, or tie them to a pole and put pitch on them and set them alight. That was Nero's idea. You know, so it was, it was intense and many of the fathers and leaders of the church were martyred during that era at that time. Now, so the first one then is that Revelation was primarily a description of first century events and the destruction of Jerusalem. And Augustine was very clearly of that opinion and that, was, that view prevailed for the first 1,000 years of church history. That was by far the dominant understanding of the book of Revelation. The second view came uh, came in the 15 1600s when and and on when there had been a long gap and people were trying to find answers to this because they weren't quite sure of what it all meant and they came up with an idea called the historical view now the historical view is that revelation is a description of events down through the whole of church history not just first century but down through the whole of church history now there are an, a lot of godly people who really took to this idea um, because, you know, including the early Puritans, Wesley was another, Luther was another. So, so, so men who had very, very dramatic ministries and changed nations really held to this view. There are a couple of specific problems with it though. First of all, um, well I can go through the problems now. Let me just, let me just give you the problems. Um, if I can find them in my notes. Now I'm not very good, am I? I'm, not, I'm using notes for the first time in about a hundred years. I don't normally use notes. Um, the, the first problem is that the people who came up with this idea really only looked at Western history. <laughs> okay, so this is a problem because, of course, they lived all in the West. You know, they lived in Europe and then they moved to America. And if God was, if this is a universal book to all the people of God, the, the church had already spread to China by the th end of the third century, and 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 it can't just be looking at Western history and the details of Western history and then finding what, you know, how Revelation fits that. Um, secondly, you know, it's very difficult to attach particular events to particular passages in Revelation. Everybody has a different opinion. It's not easy to come up with a uniform set of how this works out. There are some obvious things like where you know, the, the, the waters are poisoned and a third of the world dies. You know, in the 14th and 15th century, there was a huge plague that spread from the east to the west and killed a third of the world's population. Bubonic plague. Right. So you know there are some more obvious ones but um, his, the historical view is possible but um, you know as I say there are a couple of a couple of difficulties with it especially being so western centric because actually God's word is for the whole world and it's not just for 
ungodly Europe. It's we may need it, but you know we may need it a lot, but it's for everyone. Um, and then there was the futurist interpretation, and and this came on the last, and it has two. It had two particular divisions, and we'll close with this for this particular session. The first one was an optimistic futurist view, which was strongly held by Jonathan Edwards and other Puri great Puritan teachers of his time, because they began to see major moves of God spreading across the earth. And they felt that God, through this, would usher in the millennium. So this is a premillennialist view that we were living or are living in a time before the millennium, whereas that is open to some debate. And I don't really like looking at Revelation, whether you're pre or post millennium, because there's only one verse that talks about the millennium in the entire Bible. <laughs> so I, I'm hesitant about basing my, in, my end time doctrine on a single scripture, especially when they usually use it in a literalist sense. And as I've already said, all the numbers in Revelation, in my view, are symbolic. They mean something. So a thousand means an extended period of time which will come to an end. Right? So, so we, we, we have a positive millennialist view that the church is going to grow, that it's going to increase in its influence, that sweeping revivals are going to come. Because you may remember, Jonathan Edwards was one of the great Puritan teachers and saw a fantastic, phenomenal move of God in the 18th century in America that spread to other parts of the world. And people were finding Christ and turning to the Lord in, in huge numbers. And he thought, this is just going to usher in the, re the coming of, of a new kingdom, the beginning of the millennium, and then there will be a showdown at the end. So that was a positive premillennialist view. The other one, the other futurist view, is pessimistic. That things are going to get consistently worse, it's this was we'll explain this a little bit more in the second session um, but things are going to get increasingly worse and that God is going to have to come to rescue a weak failing church out of a world which is increasingly dark and demonic and despotic and that we we really don't have the answers uh, for for the world's needs and we are losing sight of of him and therefore he comes to rescue people out of that through what is called the rapture now that is not a biblical term um, it's not mentioned in the Bible at all there are scriptures which could are used to infer it but um, they normally only take them out of context because they have a preconceived idea so they're looking for verses that help them uh, to bolster their ideas and their thoughts uh, which really aren't fully uh, descriptive of, of what the Bible really teaches. Uh, most notably, 1 Thessalonians 4, but then they don't read chapter 5. And when you're reading a letter, it is a very good idea to read the whole letter. You know, right? You know, and how many of you receive a letter or an email from your boyfriend <coughs> with a nice photograph of him, and you read only a quarter of it, and then you put it down and come back tomorrow to read the little more? And that's how we treat the letters in the, new, in the Bible. You know, we, we read a chapter and we think we've finished. And then you read it the next day and you can't relate, remember what you read the day before. So you can, you know, the chapters weren't in the original text. You know, they weren't there. They were added to help as study aids, as were the verses, so that you can more easily break the Bible down. But it doesn't want you to break up letters, all right? So... So those are the, the, the principal theories. And as I've said, the Preterist view prevailed for the first 1,000 years in the church. Then you began to get some coming out with the historical explanation, starting with Thomas Aquinas in the 14th century. And then that went on until the late ninth, middle of the 19th century, when you began to come up with, or an 18th century, when you began to come up with the, 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 pre, the, the optimistic and pessimistic futurist views. And I will, I will explain particularly why I'm not in favor of the pessimistic futurist view. It's largely because of the people who taught it. Right? Now, you know, this is why... Let me just give you one, 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 one thing for, for extra here. This is, this is just, you know, you, you get this as an extra. Um, please, when you watch Christian TV, 
or listen to people on YouTube. Ask some questions. Ask some questions about what their family life is like, whether their children follow the Lord, whether they got their finances in order, or whether they're ripping people off and making wealth out of those who sow into their ministry. Just have some measure of understanding. That's not to say that they all have to be perfect. But we so frequently take things from others without exploring their character and their conduct. So Schofield did not know Greek. He was not a theologian. And yet he put a doctrine together along with others at the time that thousands and millions of believers have embraced, which is complete error. Because you've listened to him, because you had his Bible, and you read his notes in the margin before you read the scripture, and because you read his notes, you're interpreting the Bible through his notes, and that led to such, such error for more than a hundred years. And it filled the church in this country and in America, in Pentecostalism, in the charismatic church, early movement. It influenced late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey, who sold nine, ten million copies. And, and it, it placed a huge emphasis in completely the wrong places. And was, in my view, complete deception. So we need, you just need to understand that. So we'll talk in the second session about where these men, who these men were, why they came up with the ideas about uh, dispensationalism and then rightly dividing the word and how it created all kinds of problems and issues and confusions and where it came out of in American history and what else came out of that time in, in that particular part of America. Amen. Right, Andrew, over to you. Look, I'm not going to be doing much more than teaching this morning because my head is full of notes when I don't read them. Um, and so, you know, God bless you. You are in for an exciting ride here. This hall will be filled with 400 people comfortably by the you know halfway through next year let's believe for it amen and then you'll be you'll be buying the complex because they probably need to sell up and you know you, you can expend your walls amen <laughs>